On today's episode, an Indiana Democrat, California Democrats, the Gerber baby, Governor Fido, and so much more. This is Standing Up War History. Ask not what your country can do for you. With your host, Issa Shade. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. At this defining moment, change has come to America. When you open your heart to patriotism, there is no room for prejudice. Now to the 2018 midterm elections, which have already started. Indiana has a reputation of being a fervently conservative state, and there are good reasons for that. Donald Trump won it with a 19% advantage. Vice President Pence was its governor. Despite that, Indiana's senior senator is a Democrat. Joe Donnelly, according to a study by the Lugar Center and McCourt School of Public Policy, is the most moderate Democrat in the Senate and the second most moderate senator in total. The senator's election bid is more accurate than polls or focus groups. If you want to see which way the midterm winds are blowing, your wind vane is Joe Donnelly. It is obvious someone like this, someone who angered national Democrats by voting to confirm Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court, is very vulnerable in his race against possible GOP nominees Congressman Ted Rokita or Congressman Luke Messer. But it's not like he has no chance. The Cook Political Report has marked the Indiana race as a toss-up. A prominent Indiana Republican operative says, quote, The Republicans in Indiana view it as a pickup situation. But the problem is that Donnelly is not particularly partisan. Overall, he's done a pretty good job being vocal on the right issues, and he's chosen his spots carefully. He's done a good job of walking that line. He's being underestimated nationally, end quote. So why did this Democrat win in the Hoosier state in the first place? It's a mix of Senator Donnelly's nonpartisan style that issues divisiveness and the GOP's divisions in 2012. His approval ratings are at 55% with Republicans in his state. But one of his weaknesses in 2018 may be the fact that his low-key style didn't build much name recognition. John Childs, a pumpkin farmer who voted for Donald Trump, quote, the lesser of two evils, plans to support Donnelly next fall. Quote, he'll tell you, I work for you. He'll tell you pretty straight, it's not going to happen. Back at home, the midterms have been heating up as well. In a sharp rebuke to Senator Dianne Feinstein, the California Democratic Party has declined to endorse the state's own senior senator in her bid for re-election. Driven by conflict between progressive and more moderate forces at the state party's annual convention, delegates favored Feinstein's progressive rival, state Senate leader Kevin DeLeon, over Feinstein by a vote of 54% to 37%, according to results announced by the party. Neither candidate reached the 60% threshold required to receive the party endorsement for 2018, but the snubbing of Feinstein led DeLeon to claim a victory for his struggling campaign. A somewhat centrist Democrat, 84-year-old Feinstein has long maintained an uneasy relationship with activists who dominate state party conventions, and this vote, while embarrassing, was not unexpected. The result followed two days of lobbying by the candidates in convention speeches and throughout the convention halls. Before Feinstein could finish her convention speech, the music began playing to indicate she had used her allotted time. She kept talking. The music got louder. I guess my time is up, Feinstein conceded, as what sounded like a 1940s music score continued playing. Without missing a beat, supporters of her opponent, State Senator Kevin DeLeon, echoed her statement in a chant, Your time is up! Your time is up, a not-so-subtle reference to Feinstein's 25 years in the U.S. Senate. It seems that the Winter Olympics in Pyeongchang were years ago. I think it's important to go back to an embarrassing moment for the American media. 
Kim Yo-jung, the sister of North Korean dictator and murderous thug Kim Jong-un, visited the Olympics. She sat in the same box as Vice President Mike Pence during the opening ceremony. It was then that the media started to uncover itself. Philip Bump of the Washington Post tweeted, Kim Jong-un's sister with deadly side-eye at Pence. Michael Moore, who granted isn't a member of the media, said, I just love the whole F. Trump opening to the Olympics last night. From all Koreans coming in together under one blue flag of peace to Pence and mother, he was referring to second lady Karen Pence, forced to sit in front of Kim's sister, to the popular Korean singers joining together to sing John Lennon's Imagine. Boom. New Republic editor Jeet here said, Do you realize how massively you have to blank up so that Kim Jong-un's family looks good by comparison? But Trump and Pence have pulled it off. And then there were the headlines. CNN had a story headlined, Kim Jong-un's sister is stealing the show at the Olympics, going on to lather praise on her diplomatic skills. Reuters had this take, North Korea judged winner of diplomatic gold at Olympics. The Washington Post, the Ivanka Trump of North Korea captivates people in the South at the Olympics. Anyone with basic knowledge of the Korean situation knows that Kim Yo-jung is the head of propaganda for the Kim regime a regime that kills its own people and Americans, a regime that squashes any piece of freedom present within its borders. The entire situation shows that journalists really need to know what they're talking about. Maybe it's just that journalists go to journalism school and don't really gain expertise on what they're talking about. Maybe it's just an easy way to get headlines. If you can write eloquently but don't understand basic ideas of mass starvation and dictatorship, there's something wrong. Also, just because you don't like Mike Pence or Donald Trump, it does not mean that the acceptance of North Korea as a normal country is good. Willie Geist, co-host of MSNBC's Morning Joe, tweeted the following from the Olympics. I can report South Koreans here in Pyeongchang are not as enthralled with Kim Yo-jung and the North Korean cheerleaders as it seems some media are back home. Something about North Korea starving, killing, and imprisoning its people while threatening South Korea with nuclear annihilation. I think Geist gets it right. Another free speech case was heard before the Supreme Court. When Andrew Selig went out to vote on November 2nd, 2010, he was sporting a t-shirt featuring the Gazden flag, the Don't Tread on Me flag, and a small Tea Party logo. He also wore a button from a group worried about voter fraud that read, quote, please ID me. He was temporarily barred from voting, so he sued. Minnesota forbids voters from wearing political badges, buttons, or other insignia designed to influence and impact voting or promote a group with recognizable views in a polling place, even if the things worn do not refer to any candidate or issue on the day's ballot. Nine other states have similar laws, and all 50 states have speech-free zones around polling places. A lower court upheld law used against Celex t-shirt as furthering Minnesota's legitimate interest in polling place peace, order, and decorum, and the integrity of its election process, and get this, to protect voters from confusion and undue influence. It is one thing to ban, as the court has allowed, active solicitation of votes in or close to a polling place. It is, however, a bit much for Minnesota to forbid passive expression of political, very broadly defined, allegiances, not associated with any person or issue being voted on. What about a shirt emblazoned with the words, America is the land of opportunity? Those words, according to a guide for University of California employees, can constitute a microaggression, could trigger fainting spells. Finally, if the state of Minnesota wins in this case, there will be a dangerous precedent left. 
What if the state of North Dakota tells someone to take off an NAACP sweatshirt? The NAACP is no doubt a political organization. So maybe, just maybe, there's a reason we have the First Amendment in its beautiful, broad form. It's easy to forget how infamous the Chinese government is for making everybody kowtow to its will. And hello, Beijing, the Wall Street Journal. Roy Jones, 49 years old, never thought a $14 an hour job running social media accounts for Marriott International Incorporated would require him to know global politics. That was before he used an official company account to like a post on Twitter from a Tibetan separatist group. The group applauded Marriott for listing Tibet as a country rather than part of China in an online survey. Marriott says listing Tibet as a country was a mistake, and Mr. Jones has said the same of liking the post. Mr. Jones paid for his error with his livelihood. Marriott fired him on January 14th. Mr. Jones' dismissal comes when China is increasingly exerting its economic influence and exporting its censorship abroad. This year alone, at least a dozen Western brands and companies, including Marriott, De Delta Airlines, the Zara apparel chain, and Daimler AG's Mercedes-Benz, have drawn Beijing's fire for similar mistakes. I was completely unaware of what was going on, Mr. Jones said by phone from Omaha, Nebraska, where he worked at Marriott's Customer Engagement Center. We were never trained in any of the social graces when it comes to dealing with China. Marriott declined to comment on Mr. Jones' case. The hospitality company issued a statement saying it made its own decisions on the China-Tibet incident in line with internal policies. Craig Smith, head of the Asia-Pacific for Marriott, said in a separate statement, we made a few mistakes in China earlier this year that suggested some associates do not understand or take seriously enough the sovereignty and territorial integrity of China. Those incidents were mistakes and in no way representative of our views as a company. Not only can't you speak freely inside of China, but you can't speak freely outside of China. And that's really bad, said Chao Chang, a Chinese internet expert at the University of California at Berkeley. Marriott was within its legal rights to fire Mr. Jones, legal experts say, but some say the severity of the penalty, termination rather than a reprimand or suspension, highlights the increasingly unforgiving environment for those who offend Chinese sensibilities. A block of House Democrats is calling for an ethics investigation into the widespread practice of lawmakers sleeping in their offices, arguing it's an abuse of taxpayer funds. More than two dozen members of the Congressional Black Caucus signed on to a letter obtained by Politico to Ethics Committee Chairwoman Susan Brooks and Ranking Member Ted Deutsch, asking for a probe into the legality and propriety of such conduct by members of Congress. Quote, there's something unsanitary about bringing people to your office who are talking about public policy where you spend the night, and that's unhealthy, unsanitary, and some people would say it's almost nasty, said Representative Benny Thompson of Mississippi, the top Democrat on the Homeland Security Committee. The CBC's push targets a practice popular among conservatives triggered by former Representative Dick Armey, an architect of the 1994 Republican Revolution. Lawmakers often sleep in their offices to showcase their thriftiness and their aversion to the Washington Swamp. But it may violate House rules or federal law, according to Democratic critics. Members who sleep overnight in their offices receive free lodging, free cable, free security, free cleaning, services, and utilize other utilities free of charge in direct violation of the ethics rules which prohibit official resources from being used for personal purposes, the letter to the Ethics Committee states. Among the 30 CBC signatories to the previously unreported December 13th letter are CBC Chairman Cedric Richmond, 
Assistant Democratic Leader Jim Clyburn, and Representative Elijah Cummings of Maryland, the top Democrat on the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee. They've asked for a response from the Ethics Committee by January 5th. Members say they've heard nothing back. Members are considering issuing a follow-up letter, which would be the third in a saga one member says began almost two years ago. And if Democrats retake the House in November, they're almost certain to raise the issue again. A spokesperson for the House Ethics Committee declined to comment. The practice reaches the highest levels of Congress. Speaker Paul Ryan and Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy of California are among the dozens of members who sleep in their offices overnight. Estimates of how many do it range from 40-plus to more than 100. And while the list skews heavily Republican and male, some women and some Democrats do it too. The Democratic critics argue that the behavior is unethical and beneath the dignity of the office. They also say it is unfair to the hundreds of members who choose to live outside the Capitol, paying Washington's high living costs. The House office buildings are office buildings, the letter continues. Each member's office within the building should be used to serve the people of the member's district, not as a personal residence. The Democrats also say lawmakers sleeping in their offices could create a hostile work environment, particularly if staffers are tasked with cleaning up members' sleeping arrangements or interacting with lawmakers in their inappropriate sleeping attire. However, even in the hashtag MeToo era, there's been no indication that sleeping in the office has led to any untoward behavior or harassment. Lawmakers who sleep in the Capitol reject these charges. They say it's a way for them to work harder for their constituents. Here's how Paul Ryan justified his sleeping in his office. To me, it just made sense. I work till about midnight every night. I get up at 6, go to the gym, shower there. So what's the point? I just figured a cot made more sense to me because all I do here in Washington is work. When I'm not voting, I'm in, at home in Janesville with my family and, and talking to my constituents. The letter recommends that if the committee determines the practice is permitted, that members who live in house office buildings should be taxed at the, quote, fair market value of a Capitol Hill apartment. Representative Bonnie Watson Coleman of New Jersey pointed out in an interview that lawmakers pay taxes on reserved parking spaces on the Capitol campus but can live in their offices for free. If it is okay, then aren't there tax implications, she said? If you park your car in a reserve spot, you pay taxes on that. You park your body in a reserve spot overnight on a daily basis, and there's no tax implication. That doesn't seem to make too much sense. Some CBC members also suggested that if the committee gives a formal green light to the practice, the House should provide lawmakers a per diem to help with living expenses, as many state legislatures do across the country, or a cost-of-living salary increase. We think what's good for the goose is good for the gander, Watson Coleman said. If you're giving members an opportunity to live here rent-free using all the facilities, then perhaps those who are forced to live outside of the campus should have some consideration as well. One CBC member who declined to be named also criticized Republicans for advocating cuts to safety net programs while living rent-free in a government building. I think public housing should be for people who need it, not for members of Congress, the member said, adding that some of the lawmakers who sleep in the Capitol are multimillionaires. Regardless, the CBC members are growing impatient with the Ethic Committee's pace in addressing their inquiry. I think that two months is more than enough for the committee to do its work, Thompson said. Normally, when members inquire of the committee, there's always a prompt response. It is time now for the cover story. Our infrastructure is crumbling and we need plenty of spending to fix it. You've no doubt heard that phrase before. Whether you've heard it from Democrats. We need to invest more in infrastructure. Our roads, our bridges, our tunnels, our ports, our airports, our water systems. Not when there's so many roads and bridges and runways 
waiting to be repaired and waiting to be rebuilt. Or Republicans. Infrastructure, we're going to start spending on infrastructure big. And not like we have a choice. It's not like, oh, gee, let's hold it off. Our highways, our bridges are unsafe. You might have heard it from an MSNBC host. You and I both know an infrastructure overhaul is urgent. Why hasn't it happened thus far? That's what people don't seem to understand. Or a Fox News contributor. You ride around America today, you go through some of our airports. Uh, it's really embarrassing how much we have allowed it to decay. The point is that you've definitely heard it, and chances are you believe it. A CNN ORC poll found that 79% of Americans want increases in infrastructure spending. Politicians cling to this idea, and both the Obama and Trump White Houses have dedicated messaging and effort towards investments in infrastructure. The Trump administration has named two weeks so far Infrastructure Week. One was derailed by, among many other things, former FBI Director James Comey's testimony, the second by the issue of former White House Staff Secretary Rob Porter and accusations that he had domestically abused two of his ex-wives. And according to reports, President Trump wanted to announce the biggest investment in public works since President Eisenhower unveiled the interstate highway system, an investment that would cost three times as much as Hillary Clinton's 2016 plan. But the administration, conservatives and liberals alike, found that the deficit was too high, especially in the wake of the Republican tax bill. Trump moved to a proposal that would spend $200 billion, but would require states spend the other $1.5 trillion. The reality is that this plan won't really work. Many states are just as broke as the federal government, and they can't be expected to shell out the money. Trump's big building, big spending instincts and ambitions define the president and the politicians in both parties around him. As transportation expert Randall O'Toole puts it, politicians heavily favor, quote, ribbon cutting over brooms. Putting your name on a new bridge or tunnel is easier to take credit for than fixing an existent one. And the insistence that our roads are crumbling is really not true. In 2012, when President Obama was pushing that idea, 80% of our highways were acceptable or above. And remember, this number doesn't mean that the other 20% had become wreckages. And you might ask, well sure, urban areas and large states are doing well, but what about the rural places? Those roads can tear up truck cars. Well, no. Contrary to President Trump's claims, nearly 97% of rural roads were acceptable or better. Bridge failures in Washington State in 2013 and Minnesota in 2007 were happily used as symbolic proof of systemic disrepair. But the Washington State Bridge collapsed because a truck driver carrying an oversized load ignored post warnings. It would have collapsed if it had been brand new. And the Minnesota collapse was the result of a construction defect. Meanwhile, the conditions of our bridges have consistently improved over the past 20 years. Although almost everyone agrees that American infrastructure needs updating, some argue that it isn't lack of spending that is a problem. In 2014, according to the Congressional Budget Office, federal, state, and local governments spent $416 billion on infrastructure. Those who advocate for this idea say we don't spend enough on the right things. A New York Times expose from November 2017 found that politicians in the Big Apple and the unions that heavily fund them were to blame for the deteriorating subway system. They pulled money out of transportation funds for pet projects like doomed upstate ski resorts. And in other places, the excitement that comes with ribbon-cutting, environmentalism, and copying other countries has led to many high-speed rail projects. Although zippy trains are nifty, they zoom past the fact that America probably has the best rail system for our needs. In Europe, trucks move goods and trains move people. In America, we tend to do it the other way around.
Trump's proposal has also included streamlining the approval process for public works and improving incentives to come in under budget. After the 1994 Northridge earthquake, then-California Governor Pete Wilson used his emergency powers to bypass the usual red tape and unionized extortion that drive up costs and string out construction time. Experts thought it would take two years to fix the Santa Monica Freeway. Governor Wilson offered contractors huge cash bonuses to meet tight deadlines. The repairs were completed in less than three months. The Trump plan would leave this part up to Congress. Would anything happen? The president and Democrats also see infrastructure as a jobs program, but Japan's example has shown otherwise. If he had started his presidency with infrastructure, Donald Trump would probably have more bipartisan support. He would also have pushed the Republican Party even faster towards big spending. In conclusion, next time you hear something about crumbling roads, deteriorating airports, or something else, maintain skepticism. You think Nancy Pelosi is more toxic than Donald Trump? You know what? The honest answer is, in some areas of the country, yes, she is. That's the honest answer. That was Representative Tim Ryan talking to CNN's Don Lemon. You might think he's a Republican, a Trump supporter. The fact that he's from Ohio would help that assumption. Tim Ryan is actually a liberal. And he's not the only one criticizing Pelosi. Connor Lamb, a House candidate in Pennsylvania who will almost definitely represent its 18th district, said he didn't back Pelosi as leader. Arguably, it's why he won. You might be cynical and think that it's just red state or competitive area Democrats that are trying to get votes. But Massachusetts is neither red nor competitive. But Representative Seth Moulton, a liberal congressman, doesn't back Pelosi either. But my point is that my positions on party leadership are very clear. And I've been calling uh, for our leader to step down and to allow a new generation of leaders to step up and lead our party forward for a long time. These are just some of the many Democrats who have stopped backing Pelosi. There are many factors to Pelosi's toxicity with voters. First, her experience. Pelosi has been leader for a long time, 12 years. She's represented San Francisco for 30. All those years have caused, A, people to dislike her, just get tired of her. She's seen as a Washington creature. This was on full display when she seemed to support John Conyers after sexual harassment allegations against him came out. B. Republican efforts against her have penetrated people's minds. Republican faces in Congress are often younger. That's another reason. H. Paul Ryan is in his 40s, while Pelosi is 77. Pelosi's number two, Democratic Whip Steny Hoyer, is 78 compared to House Republicans number two, Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy at 53. Then there's what Pelosi represents. She represents Tesla owners in San Francisco. San Francisco is where I used to live. The used to is because San Francisco is only affordable to the very rich. Democrats can't be defined by that nationally. But Pelosi has her many defenders. Here's what the DCCC, Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, Chairman Ben Ray Lujan told CBS's Major Garrett. Whoever the leader may be, they would be the subject of these attacks. So um, Internally? Internally and externally. I, I think that you, you, that's just what happens is if you're, you're not able to keep everyone happy all the time, if you're doing your job, um, it's a tough, tough responsibility. And I think that's the beauty of being able to have a lot of support within the caucus. And Pelosi has repeatedly asserted confidence. I feel very confident in the support that I have in my caucus. Democrats have lost 60 seats over the past six years. So why should you keep your job? So you want me to sing my praises? Is that what you're saying? Why should I? Well, I'm a um, 
master legislator. I am a, a, a strategic, politically astute leader. I am uh, a, my uh, uh, leadership is recognized by many around the country. It seems pretty clear that ditching Nancy and Steny is a winning message. Is it one Democrats are willing to make? This year's absolutely adorable Gerber baby is Lucas Warren. The reason that he is significant to so many of us is that the little baby has Down syndrome. He's the first Gerber baby ever with the condition. What is Down syndrome? It's a congenital condition resulting from a chromosomal defect. It involves varying degrees of mental retardation, although probably not larger variances that exist between the mental capabilities of many people who are chromosomally normal. It also involves physical abnormalities, including low muscle tone, small stature, flatness of the back of the head, and an upward slant to the eyes, and some increased health risks of heart defects, childhood leukemia, and Alzheimer's disease. Average life expectancy is now around 60 years, up from around 25 years 40 years ago, when many Down syndrome people were institutionalized or otherwise isolated, denied education and other stimulation, and generally were not treated as people. Writing the script for this story was hard. It's an emotional issue, and here's why. Lucas is first. Down syndrome is just something that he has. People with Down syndrome are some of the greatest humans we have. But the numbers are astounding. In Iceland, two or three Down syndrome babies are born a year. And it's not because of science, but because of abortion that is urged by the society. Around 90% of Down syndrome pregnancies are aborted there. One Icelandic counselor advises young women with the following, This is your life. You have the right to choose how your life will look like. She says, we, we, we don't look at abortion as a murder. We look at it as a thing that we ended. Which makes Lucas and other people things that were not ended. In 2016, a French court ruled that it would be inappropriate for French television to run a two and a half minute video titled Dear Future Mom, released for World Down Syndrome Day which seeks to assure women carrying Down syndrome babies that their babies can lead happy lives. A conclusion resoundingly confirmed in a 2011 study titled Self-Perceptions from People with Down Syndrome. The court said the video is likely to disturb the conscience of women who aborted Down syndrome children. So the photos of Lucas distributed by Gerber and news outlets are probably inappropriate. Hutchinson, Kansas, the Associated Press. Kansas election officials are putting the brakes on a dog's campaign for governor. KWCH-TV reports that Taryn Woolley of Hutchinson decided to file the paperwork over the weekend for his three-year-old pooch, Angus, to run for the state's top office after reading stories about six teenage candidates. The teens entered the race after learning Kansas doesn't have an age requirement, something lawmakers are seeking to change. Angus is a type of hunting dog called a wire-haired Vigla. Woolley figured Angus would need to run as a Republican. He described Angus as a caring, nurturing individual who cares about the best for humanity and all creatures, other than squirrels. But the Kansas Secretary of State's office says man's best friend is not capable of serving the responsibilities required of the governor. The Associated Press reports on an interesting theft. Quote, Hazel Township, Pennsylvania. Police say a damning clue led to the arrest of a Pennsylvania man charged with stealing a pot of meatballs. Red sauce smeared on his face and clothes. Authorities in Luzerne County have charged 48-year-old Lehman Glenn Robert Potter with burglary, criminal trespass, and theft by unlawful taking for allegedly swiping a pot of meatballs from a man's garage on Monday. Police say the victim reported his meatballs missing and told officers at around 2.30 p.m. Monday that he saw Potter standing in front of his house with red sauce on his face and clothes. 
the pot was found on the street. It's unclear if Potter washed the sauce off before he was arrested a short time later. Potter's attorney did not immediately respond to a voicemail seeking comment. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Standing with Word History. Until next time, make somebody happy. And if you're ever arrested in Latin America, make sure to ask the officer if you can pay early. I'm Issa Shake. <laughs>